0: Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson.
1: Two supervision essay Real Clear Politics Breakfast.
0: Real Clear Betting.
2: Hugo Drochon. What did I do? I don't know, I got up and had tea and and ate a banana. Chris Brickerton.
3: Macron, Fillon, (laughs) Amon,
0: Mélenchon. And a little bit later, by this guy. It's so good to say that, David. You know, I, I like
4: you. I nobody has more respect for nobody. Has, nobody has more respect for you than, than, than me. Nobody. Nobody. Uh, you're a great guy, and, I, and I, I know you. You write sometimes in journals and papers. They're dishonest people, by the way.
0: We're going to be talking to Rory Bremner. Let's see who that was in the second half of today's podcast about whether Donald Trump is really beyond parody or not. Um, it's an open question, I think, at the moment. But first of all, we're going to try and catch up on the French presidential election because last time we had Chris here, we were trying to make sense of the new favourite, François Fillon, who was riding high. Uh, It wasn't that long ago, but a lot of water and money has passed under the bridge since then. Hugo Drochon, who's here, writes a column about the French presidential election for Project Syndicate. He's been keeping us up with the twists and turns. So what we're going to do is just try and make sense of where we are now. And then we'll try and see what we think might happen next. So I'm going to ask Hugo and Chris just to kind of catch us up on each of the main candidates in rapid fire Fillon. So Hugo, last time we were here, Fillon was odds on favorite to be the next president of France. And now he sure ain't.
2: In a word, Penelope Gate. So Fillon um, is accused of misusing over a million euros of public funds to hire his wife as a parliamentary assistant, which legally is perfectly okay, except there seems to be the case that Penelope never did any work for him. So there's two reasons why this affects Fillon. On the one hand, the scale is is quite impressive. And anyway, she never worked. And she is on record saying she never worked for Fillon's Party. And the second reason is he won in many ways the primary. He distinguished himself from Juppé and from Sarkozy as being the honest candidate who had no political scandals, kind of les affaires following him. And so that obviously completely undermines all of his um, candidacy. So the
0: basic problem is hypocrisy, the classic problem of all democratic candidates who come unstuck, right?
2: It is. The funny thing, maybe this is a change in how French politics is perceived, because as I said, this is very common. A lot of parliamentaries do hire their own family members. It's just that now that just doesn't seem to be acceptable anymore to the French public. They want to the change. There's a long, very long history of things that have been hidden, whether it's Mitterrand's, other family, etc. But that has changed now and France public just seem fed up with it.
0: OK, so we're going to do Macron in a second. But Chris, do you want to catch us up on the Socialist Party, which has chosen its candidate, Monsieur Amon? That's right. Tell ben- us a bit about him.
3: Benoit Amon, um, somewhat of a surprise victory in the, in the Socialist primaries. He's quite strongly to the left of the party. He had very uh, difficult relations with the Hollande government. So in some ways, he's one of the critics of the president's, uh, as the French call it, the bilan, his record in power. And he's now leading the Socialist Party um, in the presidential elections.
0: And just to do the obvious, is he Corbyn? ish, ask?
3: Not really, no. Um, he's, younger I think for he's younger. He's younger. Um, he's, I mean, it has to be said, you know, we discussed a bit about last time the, the survival of the French Socialist Party. It's been quite surprising, the response to the success of Amon. A number of quite heavy sort of figures within the party have rallied round. Amon seems to have a pretty solid sort of 15, 16% in the polls. If he manages to do some sort of deal with the further to the left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, you start to have actually quite a plausible campaign. So I think in some way Amon was a surprise, but it's also been quite a positive thing for the Socialist Party. And
0: is there a chance of doing a deal? So you've got two fairly far left candidates. Why why do you have two? Why not have one? Well, Jean-Luc Mélenchon
3: is um, somebody who's been around in French politics for a long time. He also has his own following much further to the left. The issues around which they disagree, there's quite a number of them. They disagree about Europe, they disagree about Hollande's record in power, a certain number of laws, labour market reforms. I don't think a deal is necessarily very likely, but it's not impossible. Um, so I suppose we thought that the Socialist Party was really going to be in trouble if Amor won. That's what everyone was saying. He did win. It doesn't seem to be in as much trouble as people had thought.
2: So finally, Macron, Hugo. Yes, from, from fake jobs to fake news, if you want. Um, Macron, on Monday, the coordinator for his movement, En Marche, came out and did a column in Le Monde accusing Russia of meddling with um, their election campaign. So they've accused them of systematic cyber attacks, um, also of attempted hackings. And it's unclear whether how true this is, but they have been able to link some of these attacks back to the Ukraine in general. And it's definitely cl- the case that last week Sputnik so one of the kind of the media outlets of the Russian regime with um Russia today ran a story which claimed that Emmanuel Macron had behind him a Franco-Israeli gay cabal. That that was the support that he had. That's the
0: conspiracy theory trifecta, isn't it?
2: That's the conspiracy. And it has elements to it. So the accusation is that there's a number of prominent businessmen who are either Franco-Israeli or gay who've been supporting Macron. And this explains also why he's a so-called darling of the French media, because they own a lot of the French media. So this is kind of Franco-Jewish, Gay media coverage. Okay, that okay, that's the
0: four way. So the reason that this is in the news now is that Macron is now the favourite. Le Pen, who will come onto in a second, and Fion. Okay, you're shaking your head. We'll come onto this in a sec. But Le Pen and Fion, very very broadly, seem to be, if not pro Putin, at least relatively relaxed. And Macron is not. So suddenly from nowhere, not from nowhere, but he's, he's come to the head of the field. There's at least a reasonable chance now he'll be the next president of France. He's running his own movement. He's an independent. And the Russians, we're meant to believe, have now turned their fire on him.
2: Absolutely. Putin thought he had his bets covered by having both Le Pen and Fillon Le Pen is an, a normal kind of, in the strong woman in this case, kind of um, example of a leader that Putin gets on well with. And Fillon, because he's staunchly Catholic, is supportive of Putin, who he sees as being the defenders of the Christians in the East. That's why he sided with him and the whole S- Syria. So yes, Macron all of a sudden looks, I mean, there's, we have debates here as to whether he can win it or not. He has a chance to win it. I think the real question, who gets into the second round has a chance of winning it and there's, um, things might change still quite a lot. But I think it's quite revealing that one of the angles of attack that has come from Assange is to try to depict Macron as a type of Hillary Clinton. So there's been these kind of leaks coming through that apparently they had meetings. So actually, Macron is a type of defender of, you know, Wall Street, which again goes back to this kind of Franco-Jewish whatever cabal well
1: wow. i was just going to say that i think one of the interesting things is 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 that the positions on russia are really polarizing because actually in french politics there's been quite a big space which was occupied by de gaulle but various of his successors as well which was to be not necessarily pro russian but not to be antagonistic towards russia and actually what you've got now is two candidates as um, hugo says who have actually looked like they're embracing putin not French interests in relation to russia and then a candidate who looks like he's lining up as the anti-russian anti-putin candidate so a space that has generally been occupied in french politics less so john Hollande's presidency is kind of vanished i think that that is going to have implications for where this race goes i mean there's many different things that might determine where this race goes but the center ground what has been the center ground in french politics on this issue has been vacated
0: chris why why were you skeptical when i said that macron is now the the strong favourite?
3: Well, so Macron is, I mean, he's being discussed a great deal now. There was a lot of discussion about what actually he stands for. Now, Macron undoubtedly has managed to build up a following. He had his movement, En Marche, which it is no coincidence, the initials of which are the same as Emmanuel Macron. There is a certain focus, if you like, on the personality, on the individual. In France, people talk about him as as a kind of guru, but but the question is, what does he actually stand for? Yeah, what kind of a yeah. guru is he? Now, what's interesting is, I mean, if you follow him on, on Twitter, and if you follow En Marche on Twitter, from there being nothing about his programme, you now have basically a kind of policy diarrhoea. I mean, it's just flowing, and it's just almost not quite random, but there's just a whole series of not really interconnected policies that are coming out. And again, that's starting to generate a lot of unease. And so. We can identify, I think, a certain set of views around Macron. Macron is basically quite close to what François Hollande became after he turned towards the right and became a much more reformist, less, you know, left-wing president. And
0: thereby became the most unpopular president in the history of the Republic. Exactly. Explain this to me. We've got a personality cult around a politician who is a guru but seen from the outside he just looks like another politician and then his policy positions are the ones that have made the current government so unpopular. Well so this is this is quite important. Macron says
3: that he is both left and right. He says this very clearly. Marine Le Pen says that she is neither left nor right. So both of them are clearly undermining in quite a profound way a traditional left-right opposition that in French presidential elections should more or less be established by now. You should have a figure from the right and a figure from the left who are now uh, competing against one another. Neither of them do that. And Macron is, I think, trying to be everything to everybody. Uh, And the reason why it appeals is because these left-right categories are starting to to not fit anymore.
2: Just to pick up on that, I think you do see the reconfiguration of politics in general over the last year into this centre versus extreme um, configuration. Macron's really trying to step into this. I think what well, so he's trying to step in, he says, I'm the centre, but I'm neither left nor right. Or, so it's or this, both, oh, he says both. both he's, left. he's both left. Right? So that's it's what makes kind of, him the centre. Yes, it's this kind of radical centralism, because the idea is that he's willing to take policies from either side. He is quite new in the French system in that he's liberal, but he's socially and economically liberal when that's quite new. Normally, it was either one or the other. But I think going back to the olong point, and this talks to Chris's point about the future of the Socialist Party. There's always been a tension within the Socialist Party about the reformist wing or the kind of more radical wing or the more authentic wing, if you want, which goes all the way back to Mitterrand's turn in the second um, years of his elections. But you can separate out what Hollande's policies have been and to Hollande the person himself. A lot of the things that were going against Hollande is that people just didn't want to see him any, anymore. But the type of policies that he has still has an echo in French politics. And I think that's something that, that could be overlooked.
1: I think there's two different things going on here. First of all, I think there is a personality cult in French politics that does actually go beyond the left-right distinction. And it comes from de Gaulle, who was also trying to play this, neither of the left or of the right. And I think that Macron wants to be de Gaulle. I mean, I think it's somewhat absurd. And you know, there's just nothing there in terms of the engagement with the world that there was in the way in which de Gaulle thought about a whole range of political matters. But I think, and this picks up what Hugo said, that this is kind of like a history repeating itself in a rather absurd way of the Mitterrand Delors relationship. I think the person who he's kind of like is Delors. But what Delors did in 1983, when Mitterrand's attempt at being social democratic, just like Hollande's failed, Mitterrand's has failed, Delors went off and was president of the European Commission and drove the Monetary Union project, which was essentially a French project to try to tame German monetary power. And now Macron is trying to play the same role, except by being French president. And there is no possibility of challenging German monetary power from the position of being French president. And at the same time, in one sense, the battle's been won, is, is that the European Central Bank has been turned into something that, if you were a French politician in the 1980s, looks much more like what they wanted, except it's turned out to be absolutely meaningless in terms of changing any outcomes that benefit France. So it's kind of... I don't want to use the word pathetic, but there's a kind of pathetic element, I think, to this drama as it's playing itself out. Now, in the end, one of these candidates has got to be president. I mean, the whole field of it. And and you look at them and you say, OK, you can find a reason why any one of them can't be president. So in the end, one of them is going to emerge out of this mess. But I I think that we shouldn't underestimate what it reveals about really the extent of crisis that French politics is in. So
3: can Fionn come back? Absolutely. Fionn's support has held up surprisingly well. He took a very big hit. He may take more. The legal procedures have uh, still to be completed. So he's, he's nowhere near having closed that particular chapter. But I think we'd be you know, absolutely wrong to think that Fillon is finished. I mean, I've had this discussion with a few people. He came back very strongly at a press conference a few days ago. He's made it very clear that there is nobody in the wings who will step in if he steps down. Juppier was tested. He said he wasn't ready. There's a few other heavyweights who decided not to come in. So it's basically only Fillon. If that's the case, then I think... Le Pen, given all the statistics, suggest that she's probably the one most likely to get into the second round. I think then it becomes a very closely run race between Macron and Fillon.
0: So is there a danger here, given the way that the system works, that you have the first round to produce the final two? And the key question is, who is if Le Pen is one, who is the other out of Macron and Fillon? And over the next couple of months plus, they just rip each other apart in the fight, including funneling these conspiracy theories, accusing each other, all sorts of things, that they damage each other so severely in the fight to be the second person in the runoff that Le Pen possibly has a chance to win it? I think the we mustn't forget that what lurks behind all
3: of these figures is the French economy. If you look at the vote for Le Pen, she's overwhelmingly supported by very young people, many of whom have pretty dire prospects of getting you know, permanent jobs anywhere. So it's very much the reverse of, of some of the voting patterns in other countries. So what Marine Le Pen has is a pretty solid vote. If she manages to tack on a bit to this kind of left-wing vote and keeps her party together, that's a pretty solid programme. There is the chance, I think, then, if Macron and Fillon not perform badly, but just target each other. And especially if Macron doesn't deliver on actually having a a plausible program that people can identify him with. I mean, Amon in some ways more identifiable with this universal basic income than Macron is. Nobody really knows what Macron stands for in just a few words. Uh, So if that continues, the difficulty for Le Pen is always to go beyond just her core vote. But Nobody, I think, who's discussing the French presidential elections now is willing to say there are any certainties left in French politics. And Marine Le Pen not getting through past the first round was always one of those certainties I think we have to accept no longer really exists.
2: Yeah. And it goes back to Helen's point about Europe, because the two options that you seem to have if you're talking about the economy is Marine Le Pen saying, OK, the euro doesn't work. Let's go back to a national version of our currency, which maybe is part of a basket like the old ECU was. And Macron has given the opposite. And there, there's really a distinction between the two. Macron's really come out and said, no, I'm the pro-European Canada. I think we need to reform from within. And this is the way forward. And just a point about Fillon and Macron, what the kind of the challenges that they're facing. Fillon has, has maintained quite well. And what's being discussed right now in the media is this kind of very he- heavy handling of this arrest of this young black French youngster in, in the banlieue. Um, And that's obviously naturally played to the right wing and the Fillon team have seized upon that, say, look, OK, let's move on from this affair and let's talk about actual politics. But today's Canal Enchainé, so that's the newspaper that has revealed all the fake um, jobs is coming forward with a story about how Fillon's spokesman hasn't paid his income tax for three years. So he's very much, he's still in the game, he's very much damaged it. And one of the things we're talking about is how much security they have in terms of votes. So Fillon still has 70% of the people who say that they're going to vote for Fillon, will vote for Fillon. Macron, it's half that, it's around 35, 36%. And well, so, who
0: say that they will definitely vote for the person for, that they are supporting in yes, the opinion polls as yes
2: well. so that's real Macron's challenge and the question is for him whether if he comes forward of a program that actually pushes up the, the type of voting or not because in many ways he's been the kind of receptacle of all these desires that everybody has projected upon him whether he's able to shoulder that is the question
0: and to relate it to the other big political news story of the week, which is we don't want to spend too much time talking about what's going on in Washington. But the, 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 it's a kind of hysteria now around Russia and Putin. What you said about Macron and all of these kind of wild stories that may or may not be emanating from Moscow about him. Is he vulnerable personally to scandal? I mean, in a sense, unlike Fion, because he's this receptacle of hope, but there may not be much there. Those kind of candidates are potentially more vulnerable to scandal because there's nothing to fall back on on the other hand if he can successfully claim to be the victim of some cyber ops campaign coming out of moscow he might be able yeah. to push back hard how vulnerable is he to this i think
2: so i think that's i think it's, cabal i think stuff. it's been I think it's been a good proy by the old movement to say, look, we're also the victims. We know what happened in the U.S. Let's not, be, let's not fall into that again. And the whole attempt to paint him as a type of Hillary Clinton in France is just not going to work. There's no kind of like sense of she's this evil character in France. That doesn't really play. It's hard to know. He is vulnerable to certain things he really needs to come together and actually give his programme, and that's what he's... That's what people are waiting for now, and I think ultimately he'll be judged on that.
1: His vulnerability in this respect, though, is is in the Hillary Clinton respect, is that he's a banker. Not that she was a banker, but that she was tied to the Wall Street candidate, and he can be tied to finance. And I think that that is a liability in France. I think, though, that on the point about... um, candidates that are kind of people project their hopes onto, they're not necessarily vulnerable to scandal, I mean Obama ran that kind of campaign in in 2008 successfully, is is I think the difference in this case is is that was an election that became a lot about identity and national identity and Obama's biographical story. And that kind of worked with that political moment in the US, whereas Macron's biographical story does not work with the moment in France, not least because of the banker aspect to it.
0: But I would say the difference, two differences, is that um, Obama was the candidate of one of the two main parties and Macron is an independent. And I know there are scandals around Obama, but relatively speaking, he was one of the
1: no but that's my point is is that he was scandal relatively scandal free despite the fact he was a candidate who people were were projecting all kinds of you know big hopes and rather in some sense vacuous hopes onto
0: And in presidential systems it's really hard for independent candidates to win
1: It is but I think McCall has some things in his
3: favor one is that he's very young so he's not been around long enough to just pick up scandals. He's also not been a party manager, party insider, party chairman. He's not had these kind of offices of mayor that are tied to parties in France, which are the source of of scandals. So the party financing issue hasn't really touched him because he's less of a party issue. So those two things, I think, are a big issue that that may play in his favour. The other thing is that he has a slightly peculiar personal life, but it's not one that's particularly scandalous. Some people don't like that. So his wife is 20 years older than him. That's right. She was a teacher at his school. That's right. And that sort of stuff is... It's kind of sweet. <laughs> well, it's also it's also public, and it's not really anything that you can sort of dish the dirt on. So I think the fact that he's an outsider will, in a very substantial way, play in his favor. And the, the presidential system does, in some ways, it's not a system that's designed so over, overwhelmingly around the parties. It's designed around the person, the individual. And if you can build up the persona, if you can, in French, it's this idea of incarnation. If you can plausibly play the role of the president um, and construct a persona around that that's what you campaign yeah and I,
0: i did that thing that would annoy french people a lot which was i said presidential systems i was really thinking about america actually it's hard to win as an independent in the united states maybe not under other systems i
1: think there's one more thing that we have to bear in mind is is that this election is going to take place against the background of market trouble for france and these other elections have not because the markets the financial markets have kind of been burnt by the Brexit vote and by the Trump vote these were not things that they expected to happen they didn't really factor in the political risk though it turns out in both cases that the market risk was much less than they might have thought for the outcome that in the end ensued but what we can see at the moment in France is the financial markets are already getting extremely tetchy with what's going on they are reacting to opinion polls and the spread the difference between the rate that the French can borrow at 10-year bonds and the rate in which the Germans can borrow out a 10-year bond, something that massively matters in terms of the French political elite is already edging up. So there's seven more months of this to go and it wouldn't take much for that to be a kind of crisis of the financial markets for France that this election takes place against the backdrop of.
0: So I'm not going to ask you to predict who are going to be in the final two. I'm going to ask you a different question as the final question here, which is, I alluded to it just now, we've got a huge story in Washington about Putin, the Russians, the resignation of Flynn, the National Security Advisor. And there's, I think there's a this now smacks to me of a kind of panic about Russia and Russian influence on Western democratic politics. And some of it, I think, is way over the top. And a lot of it is self-referential on the part of the American media, who are both terrified that they're being played, but also desperate to assert their own kind of traditional role as the gatekeepers of truth. So there's something of this going on in France now, too. We haven't had it in this country, really. But Am I right in thinking that this might be about to peak um, and that this is one of those phases that democracies go through? That's my sense of it, or do you think actually this could be the beginning of a rumbling uh, sort of story that will actually possibly undo Trump and really impact on french politics are we Are we at peak Putin panic or not?
1: I don't think that we are. I think that it's the hysteria and I think it is hysteria is growing, and I think that it's being used to try to bring the Trump presidency down. And I don't think the Trump presidency can last four years.
3: I think it probably can last. I think the dynamics driving the French presidential election, however, I think are more parochial and closer to home. I think it's it's really going to be run on who has a plausible solution to some of France's economic problems. And I think you know one of the parties that definitely has a programme and a plan is the National Front. And when there's a hint, just even a hint that the demographics may in some way plausibly lead to a Marine Le Pen victory, even if that's just hinted at. I think some of what Helen was saying is going to to ring true because Le Pen has a very radical plan for France's role in the the Eurozone. But I think these are the factors that uh, are driving what's going on in France. I think the the foreign policy aspects, I think, in my opinion, in this campaign will, will fade a little bit.
0: Hugo, you were the person who used the phrase Jewish, what was it?
2: Um, gay, gay Jewish media, media cabal. cabal okay. um, I, think this, I think I agree with the panel in saying this will continue, but I think it's going to play out slightly differently. I wonder whether this is what, at least what En Marche and Macron is trying to do, is to make it play in their favor. And that's something new. Um, and we'll see whether actually this election works in their favor or not.
0: Thanks very much to Helen, Hugo and Chris. And we will talk about this some more. We've got how long have we got till the election?
2: Two and a half months? Uh, Three? Two, Three. It's of end of April and beginning and, of May.
0: Okay. And we Right at home.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site
0: for details. Got the Dutch elections in between. We've talked about that too. Oh, it never stops. Next week, we're going to talk about the Stoke by-election. Oh, the excitement. Um, But for the second half of this week's show, we've got uh, an interview with Rory Bremner that I recorded in his dressing room before a show he did last week. Um... His show is called Partly Political and is mainly about politics. Um, and I wanted to ask him, and I think a lot of people have asked him and other comedians this, whether Trump is good or bad for business, basically. Because on the one hand, you think, and you could tell by the audience for his show, people are really into politics at the moment and they want to be amused. On the other hand, it's kind of hard to know how you make Trump funnier than he really is. So I started by asking him whether he is beyond parody.
4: I keep going back to Tom Lehrer, who said that satire became obsolete when Henry Kissinger was given the Nobel Peace Prize in '73, and you know you just move on from that with Tony Blair and the Middle East Peace Envoy, and Donald Trump as president, and, and Boris as the foreign secretary, and things like Neil Hamilton. The other day, I heard uh, he was—he said he was talking to the, the backers of UKIP, like Aaron Banks and stuff, and he said he said, you know, you can't influence policy with your checkbooks, and this is Neil Hamilton who whose claim to fame was that he took brown envelopes from Mohammed Al-Fayed. And I think we're in a place, we're in a world where normal rules just simply don't apply. Anyway, They certainly don't apply to Donald Trump, uh, and then by extension they don't apply to anybody else. So uh, there is a sense of of crisis, I think, and it really affects, you know, like the Romantic poets used to sort of, they used to appropriate the weather and to their mood and say, you know, if it's you know miserable and melancholic and all the rest of it but i think there's a sense of real uncertainty and fear around and much as you know we kind of send up trump and and, and send up boris i think there's a, there's something a lot darker and part of doing this show has been to try and obviously it's a comedy show and and it's not a lecture and you're not preaching and the idea is that people will be entertained but i think it's important as well to to consider some of the issues as well and also to you know to make people think a little bit and to actually sort of think myself so it's now perhaps about sort of sketching in some of the darker colors and also bringing some facts into the into the comedy
0: so I'm going to say something heretical here which is Mm -hmm. I think Alec Baldwin's Trump I, I actually agreed with Trump's tweet when he said just watch Saturday Night Live not funny because it was too easy and in a way it was too obvious and it didn't have the thing that I think I've heard your Trump on the radio so I haven't seen you do it but that your Trump has which is Trump's there's a kind of warmth he draws you in. He's scary. It's good to say that,
4: David. You know, I, I like you. Nobody has more respect. For, nobody has. Nobody has more respect for you than than, than me. Nobody. Nobody. Uh, you're a great guy, and I and I, I know you. You write sometimes in journals and papers. They're dishonest people, by the way. So no, he's flirtatious. He's coquettish. Exactly. Yeah. He and he and he does. He's vain because yeah. he's vain because we. I mean, I think you know psychologically. There's a lot going on there. I think. Uh, um, I was talking to Alistair Campbell of all people the other day, and and uh, just uh, he was laying out sort of three traits of narcissistic personality disorder, socio pathology and machiavellian tendencies. So we know the narcissist, we know the the sociopath uh, with having little regard for the effect of his actions on other people. And the machiavellian uh, we know about that. But yet he's the vain part of it is, you know, he is flirtatious. You know we know he likes women, we know that he thinks he can have his way. He he wants people to like him. So he's extraordinarily thin-skinned and yet obviously he, For somebody who stirs up so much controversy, you all have to have a, a fairly thick skin as
0: well. I, I can't, I haven't quite worked that one out yet. When you were working out how to do him, what was the thing that you were looking for? Because you're almost kind of, you've almost got to humanise him first before you can make fun of him, which I think is what yes. the Saturday Night Live problem is, in that they... They're just going straight for.
4: There is a big difficulty that if you make these people clowns, like Boris Johnson and, and Donald Trump, and you play it for laughs, you kind of create a space that they can inhabit. So it's almost to say, well, you know, of course it's Donald Trump, or oh, you know, it's it's just Boris. Or I mean, I remember, of course, I started out with Reagan and spitting image, uh, and then of course more recently George Bush. I mean, Trump makes George W. Bush look like look like Roosevelt. You know, he is unlike anything that we've seen before, and or, I think... Yeah, ever, really. Yeah, ever.
0: And... And so he's not like Boris in that respect.
4: No, really. I mean, Boris is... No, I mean, I lumped them together because of, perhaps because of their hair and because of their colourful and because... Of, I mean, it's it's fun for satire and fun for sort of comedy to have these big characters. I mean, part of the Coalition thing. I, I'm sad we didn't do shows during the Coalition, but I mean, the Coalition we had people like Jeremy Hunt and, and Chris Grayling, we still have now, um, and Phil Hammond, and, uh, who are, were such grey characters and even Clegg to an extent, and you know, possibly Cameron. Well, I, I think I've got... Camera now, and I think we can make him more. You know, he, he became a sort of like leading character, almost, almost for the, for want of others. But you know, in the sort of in the 80s when satire was big, because Thatcher was a big character, of course, um, and you know there were one or two in that category, and Reagan, and Norman Tebbit as well. So there were we had the grotesques, and so that always, if you're doing comedy, it always helps to have some big characters. If almost, it's almost like putting up a tent, and you need the tent poles, and if you have big, strong characters that that work, then that can carry a lot of material, if you know what I mean. But Trump, yeah. I keep going back to the Peter Cook thing where he said that 1930s German cabaret scene did nothing to prevent the rise of Adolf Hitler. We've got Pony Park Slach Haaren, which has got to be the best pony park in the world. It's
3: true. They're the best ponies. They are. You can ride them. You can date them. You can grab them by the pony. It's fantastic, This is the
4: Aufslautdijk. It's a great, great wall that we built to
3: protect us from all the water from Mexico.
0: That's a clip from a Dutch TV satire of Trump that uh, I saw it and Rory retweeted it. It's gone viral now. I think it's had like 22 million views on Facebook. And my view is that it's funnier than Saturday Night Live. And I think the reason it's funnier... Is that they're making fun of themselves? And I asked Rory if he agreed that the key to satirising Trump is not just to seem as though he's funny, kind of he makes us all funny.
4: It can't just be a blunderbuss. I mean, it is a real thing. We ha- we have to work out how we're going to do Trump because I don't think I don't think making him a figure of fun necessarily. It's going to. It's going to change because he is so ridiculous I mean I say as part of my act it's only really as a setup but um, I say that you know part of my job is to make politicians more ridiculous than they already are in order to be able to say have you any idea how hard that is these days because you know he is already ridiculous he is already um, the most e- extraordinary um, caricature in a sense so you're there already but it's it's how it's how we find a way to to be darker, um, and I so I don't I don't know. It's still very early days, but I mean he's hit the ground running at, at such a speed. But I think maybe it's just going to be a process of the facts and the law and the constitution will catch up with him. Facts, interestingly, because you know straight away he, this is a he starts off and his with his press spokesman making claims which are demonstrably untrue. I mean he says you know were more people you know came to the inauguration we had more people than Obama, and it doesn't take a lot to look at the photographs or to look at the figures for the subway in Washington on that day, and it's demonstrably false and then to say you know well more people voted for me because you know of the illegals we know that Hillary won the popular vote. He said it, it stopped raining when he made his inauguration speech and he I said no it, did, it, it was almost the exact opposite. Why does he lie about things which are provably force. I've, I've had a, f- a friend of mine play golf with him once, and he came off, he said, well, that was good, I shot a 75. And both my friend and the professional, the next day they were chatting, and they said, he must have
0: gone in around 79, 80. But it's almost habitual. Uh, he's a habitual liar. So, he, and, uh, and there is this kind of striking evidence now, people have tried to ask this question, Why why don't people mind more about his lying? And it looks like people don't on the whole mind when someone lies brazenly about the facts because they don't feel like they're being patronized in that they can see it's not true. He's kind of playing with them. And what people hate is being talked down to by someone who claims to know better than them. And he doesn't have that. I mean, it's this weird thing. His lying is almost so brazen, it's not offensive. Whereas what people didn't like about Hillary was she wasn't a liar like he was. But she seemed to be kind of moralising. And the thing that Trump never does is he never actually tells people that they're no good. Mm-hmm. He doesn't come across as a kind of hypocrite. Well, I, be- immediate, I immediately read that across to Brexit, of course, and, you know,
4: the, the lies on the, side, on the side of the bus. And I know that, you know, people were saying that there are lies on, on both sides. But I, th- I think there is that difference between you prefer the colourful liar... To the person who patronizes you and who's part of an elite that you blame for ignoring you and, and, and leaving you to one side. And that's where we are now. And this, this momentum that has, has built up and it's, it's spread like wildfire. And I mean, I think you've written about this, where, where democracy is kind of in danger. I remember Tony Benn years and years ago when I was asking him to do stuff on my show, and it's a different context, but he said he, said he, he wouldn't do the show. He said, we should, it's troublous. He said, why don't you? Once you undermine people's uh, belief and trust in their MP, once you undermine all that, where does it get you? Because, of course, MPs and senators and presidents, they are our representatives, you know, they are our representatives in a democracy. If somebody comes along and says, you know, they're all liars, they're all in it for themselves, or there's a common belief that really all politicians are the same, they're all in it for themselves, then there's this kind of anarchy going on and tearing it all down, and and ironically, from a satirical point of view, you find yourself almost arguing for the establishment because the alternative is this real tearing down of, of politics. It's almost a kind of... It's a frenzy, isn't it? And, and I think it's, it's, very, it's very dangerous.
0: We then talked about Bremner, Burden, Fortune, and something that Rory Bremner said on a Westminster Hour discussion about satire in the age of Trump which was when he was making that programme with the two Johns, Bird and Fortune, they spent an awful lot of time trying to research and understand the issues before they made fun of them. And he said, when William Hague was in the House of Commons making jokes about politics, he and his comedian friends were back researching the politics that he thought William Hague should be more serious about. But the problem with Trump and the world that we're in now is does anyone really know what's going on? I mean, how do you do that research? What would it be to try and understand it before you make fun of it?
4: It is like punching fog at the moment. I mean, the interesting thing about Brexit, I thought, was because, of course, when Theresa May made her speech and then published the White Paper, it's the first case that I'm aware of where the manifesto has turned up about six to eight months after the election, (laughs) you know? And that's it's a really weird thing. And and we're sort of pretending that, that, well, of course, you know, that was was going to be. But it's just an extraordinary thing. And people say, well, no, that's what we voted for. And I send it up a bit by saying, you know, it's rather like, you look at the British public. If you ask them a silly question, they'll give you a silly answer. So, you know, they ask them to name a popular research vessel. They come out with Boaty face. On Strictly, they'll go for Ed Bulls, On X Factor, they go for Honey G. On Brexit, well, and and what happens in all of those cases is it ends up with the judges, <laughs> whether it's Len and Bruno or Simon Cowell or um, and Louis Insultion, Walsh whatever he's called. Or, or the Supreme Court. But that joke gets you into terrible trouble with the Brexiters because they think you're, again, they think that I'm patronizing and they think exactly. that I'm belittling and all the rest of it. What I'm doing with that, I'm simply, it's just simply a kind of a conceit that I think it's really, uh, it, it's all of a piece with the with populist vote eventually ending up in the courts when, when the experts and that's a very loaded word now have to actually make sense of it but yes I suppose in a nutshell I've always said that part of my job is trying to make sense of, of stuff and then make nonsense of it Well, you know, at the moment, that's the hardest job there is, because we don't, we genuinely don't know. And so I talk about these three box sets turning up in my life, one of Brexit, one of Trump and one of Corbyn, and I don't want to watch them, I just want to know how they end, because until they end, I'm in a world where I am existentially confused, where Trump, uh, people say, uh, well... He was elected, and now he's doing exactly what he said he'd do. What's your problem? And I'm going, have I got a problem with democracy? And then I think, well, no, but it doesn't make it right. And also, you've got to consider, why did people vote? And I think we've got to be very careful, because we're pulling ourselves apart. And I see it in our very first show yesterday. Alistair Campbell was was quite punchy, and somebody from the audience challenged him. And the atmosphere suddenly... Plummeted, And I thought, whoa, this could go either way. I had to keep it light and all the rest of it. But there is this feverish atmosphere, and people are against each other. Whereas I think behind this, there is a failure of, on the one hand, the liberal or kind of neoliberal consensus to have delivered the goods over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, And there's reasons for that. But anyway, what it meant was it meant that people did feel ignored and and patronised and... Neglected, on the one hand, and I think you need to address why that happened. And on the other hand, we need to go after the demagogues who've exploited this and have fed this sort of this, the xenophobic and the racist and the and the need to blame other people. So those are the big targets beyond. And there's another little point I make about that, which is I think for 20 years. You know, we talk about that degree, PPE. I think, I think they're, they're not at Cambridge, either, but uh, but Oxford, about you know, philosophy, politics, economics. So philosophy has always been with us and always will be. But economics completely took over for 20, yeah. 25 years. And it's interesting in the media that now, Evan Davis, Newsnight, he was uh, the economics editor. Robert Peston was the business editor. And now he's ITV's political editor. And Sky's political editor is Faisal Islam. So they've all come from economics so they needed you needed in order to be a political correspondent demonstrably by that you needed to know about economics and i think what's happened and it started with the scottish referendum and then corbyn and then brexit and now trump is that politics came back hugely that politics came back and in scotland it was a positive kind it was an engagement a real engagement with what what it was and would would an independent scotland be better with brexit and with trump it's a different kind of engagement and, you know, you, that's where you have to ask yourself a lot of questions. You have to ask yourself, is this
0: democracy? One last question from me. When when you were doing Bremner, Burden, Fortune, so the, the two Johns, when they did their... Um, one of them would play a businessman or a cabinet politician, and they would be explaining, in general terms, what was basically crookedness. And you were kind of exposing that behind the nice talk, things were for want of a better word, fairly corrupt. And now that's the kind of general view that we have of them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also, where do you go now? So if you were doing that now, because then, in a sense, it was a comfortable time. I mean, economic, yes. this is pre the crash. It was You were sort of exposing things that mm-hmm. were concealed by the fact that we were all leading comfortable lives. Yes. And now, as you say, politics has come roaring back. Anger has come roaring back. Populism has come back. So that kind of... Showing people just what really goes on behind the scenes. Would you have some nervousness now that you were, well, we're just fueling feeling, it? Yes, <laughs> fueling it because I mean I do feel that that part of the
4: problem is that everybody is a satirist now in a sense, and, and that yeah. newspapers, if you look newspapers and comment, you know there is increasingly the and particularly on the front page, whether it's a Mail or, or Express or what. I mean, particularly the Mail. It's not the news, it's the comment. It's a very, very strong... And it tends to be cynical. It tends to be cynical and tends to be destructive. Uh, I mean, no more so than enemies of the people. I mean, that is the ultimate. Um, And I think, you know, they thought they were being extraordinarily, sort of provocatively, darkly, satirically witty uh, with something like that. Um, But so... uh, (laughs) I I I've I've always held back from t- from wanting to be cynical because I think I've I've always had some hope that you know in some ways that we are perfectible or whatever and uh, so skeptical yes but I think I think we have you know you sometimes I think well did did with that was weak that was not and the end of the age of deference I mean clearly you know it was it was we were, it was a ridiculously deferential society in the 60s but has it gone too far the other way so now we are a um <laughs> to use a, a lovely Henry Blofeld um, adverb, um, ungovernably, um, an adjective rather, uh, yeah, so to use a Henry Blofeld word, uh, have we become ungovernably cynical? He used the word talking about, um, he, he, said, he said, you know, I do think that Gladstone Small does walk back to his, his mark ungovernably slowly. <laughs> but actually, in this context, I think we may have become ungovernably cynical.
0: Thank you very much to Rory Bremner. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Mary Beard about women in power. And as I mentioned, we're also going to look ahead to some slightly more parochial issues by elections in the UK, where we decide whether UKIP or Labour really is the, as Donald would say, the failing party. That'll be next week. Do join us then. Do please follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. (laughs) I was going to
1: say, as well as listening to impersonations of Trump, it's well worth having a look at um, Donald the Unready's Twitter account, who is tweeting away as if he is King of Mercia in Donald Trump style. Mm. It's very informative about Anglo Saxon history and it's very funny. (laughs) Right, okay. And he really does have the art of how Trump writes a tweet.
0: Macron, Fillon, Mélenchon, Mm -hmm. uh, Amon, Le (laughs) Pen, Bon Moment. (laughs)